Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. It is Tuesday afternoon, which means it is Draft Deep Dives Day. So I'm here today with my co-host, Tyler Metcalf, to talk about all things draft prospects right before March Madness begins. It's it's absurd that we're already here. The, this season has absolutely flown by, uh, but it's really exciting. Best time of the year. Um, and I'm kind of excited to dive in on the two guys we are scheduled for today. So let's start with the first player that we're diving in on today. Your most recent Friday Screener article over at No Ceilings NBA was on Blake Wesley out of Notre Dame and his space creation ability. And I just want to start off by getting your thoughts on Wesley overall, focusing on his space creation, but really your thoughts on him overall, because he has been one of the most confusing prospects for me to try and get a handle on this college basketball season. Unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be much help in clearing up that frustration because I, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, I, on one hand, I get what everyone is enamored by because when his shot is falling, like it was against Wake Forest, where he was like six of eleven from three, he looks awesome. Um, the issue is that he's so boomer bust that there's no, there's just so little consistency to his scoring game that it's really infuriating and to to start off the the space creation i think is really encouraging for his long-term prospects as a scoring guard because he he's he does have really good footwork he's a good ball handler he's really quick especially with that first step um his ability to kind of change pace and his quick twitch movements i think are are really impressive and really encouraging long-term but how he actually goes about getting his buckets is really infuriating. Uh, the, the shooting for him looks different on every single shot. Uh, he doesn't have the strength to really finish through contact at the rim right now. And he doesn't have a ton of craft or really a plan when he drives. There are so many times where he just drives into a shot blocker, gets swallowed up and tries to go through them to negate their shot blocking ability but he's just so small currently that he has zero impact doing that so it's a lot of really bad shots it's a lot of inefficient shooting um but when it's clicking it looks really incredible um so i i i overall i think he would be better better served coming back to school for another year but I I 100% understand why a lot of people are kind of viewing him as this first round prospect, because in terms of scoring, there's a lot there to really get excited about. I mean, with Wesley, he has clear lottery level upside, especially in this particular draft class, but he also has such high bust potential that I mean, I think it would just take the right NBA team falling in love with him for him to decide to enter his name into the draft because he's got a first round promise somewhere. But I could just as easily see a world in which he puts his name into the draft and basically all the teams come back with, yeah, we're not going to draft you. Maybe we'll take you as a two-way guy when nobody else picks you, but you're much better off going back to school. There's just such a wide range of outcomes for Wesley, not only on any given possession, but, you know, in terms of his evaluation as prospect overall. It's just, it's so hard to get a grasp on, on where he's kind of viewed because just when, whenever you look at draft boards, whether it's major outlets, people on draft Twitter, just really anywhere, he's ranging from 10 to 60. So it's really difficult to kind of get a grasp on where 
he's kind of viewed. Um, I, I think if he does go out this year, I think it's going to have to be a team that gives him a promise in the first round and kind of lays out a pretty clear plan of how they're going to develop him. Because I, I do think there's going to be, it, he's going to require a pretty serious time investment because that shot, I think really needs to be re- reworked. There are a lot of bad habits in it. There's a lot of variance and there are just so many things that need to be smoothed out that I think it's going to be a while until it's a legitimately consistent weapon in the NBA. So you mentioned consistency and that I think is the real thing with his shot. We've talked about players with funky shots before, I think more with Tyrese mm-hmm. Halberton than anybody else, but the point being that it's much more important for you to be consistent on a shot that goes in a lot rather than just, you know, having your legs be in different places basically every time you take a shot as compared to the previous one. I mean, one line that you say in the piece that I think does a really good job of telling the story is Wesley's timing on his moves is either extraordinarily lucky or he has a pretty good sense of what he's doing. And that's the thing. It's like, it's really hard to tell which of those two extremes he's going to be at on any given possession and you know there's sort of the I believe this is Jamal Crawford so apologies if I'm quoting the wrong person but the Jamal Crawford thing of if I don't know what I'm going to do until I do it the defender definitely doesn't know what I'm going to (laughs) do until I do it which you get a feeling of that with Wesley sometimes and you'd like for him to at least have a couple of plays where he's a little bit more consistent and then you know the freelancing element is something that I think is really helpful you know two players that I think this is easiest for me to see it with are Karis LeVert and Shea Gilgis-Alexander, where they just have a little bit of a different dribbling rhythm than everybody else. And most of the time that makes it really harder for defenders to deal with them because they're not sure, you know, which kind of funky way they're going to get to the basket. So sometimes that really, really works well. But with Gilgis-Alexander and Karis LeVert, I feel like they're at least good enough at using their sort of weird package to get to the rim and score there that, you know, if they're doing funky stuff on the perimeter, sometimes it's not as big of a deal if it doesn't work out. But with Wesley, it kind of feels like the funkiness is just all there is. And I feel like he has to at least be a little bit more consistent, especially with his form on his jump shot, if he's going to be able to stick as the kind of player he could be if he hits his sort of absolute upside. Yeah, I think funky is just a really kind of good way to describe how he plays because when he kind of lulls the defender to sleep and then hits him with like a really quick like jab step step back, it's like, oh, like where did that come from? Like that came out of nowhere. And then a couple of the videos I had with some of his crossovers, it's just really quick and precise and they he executes it the second that defender turns their hips so they have zero chance to recover and it's just really like oh my god this guy really knows what he's doing out there and then he'll throw up a shot that hits the other side of the backboard or drive into a shot blocker and bounce off them and throw something up over his shoulder without even looking at the rim it's like what are you doing like it was so good and then it devolved into that so it it's so frustrating because like the the creation instincts and the will to create is clearly there. I, I think some of the shot selection issues are kind of exacerbated by his role and no one else on that team really being able to kind of create their own shot or create shots for other people. Um, so I, I kind of want to believe that that role and situation is encouraging him to do more of this and that he could tone it back. But you never really know what that kind of stuff 
I would have to hope that you're right for the evaluation of him as a prospect. You note in the piece, among players with a usage rate of at least 30 this season, he has the seventh worst true shooting mark in the country and the worst among high major conferences. So, I mean, you know, not to sort of go right back to your wheelhouse here, but like Johnny Davis doesn't have all that much help at Wisconsin and he's still been remarkably efficient taking on a bigger load in the Wisconsin offense. And, you know, that's just an example I'm using to bait you in particular, but, (laughs) you know, there are a lot of examples of players who have a much larger role in the offense than maybe they should. And they're all doing a better job of it than Wesley is this season. I mean, literally the worst mark among high usage players in high major conferences. It's pretty difficult to be positive about somebody's evaluation when they're literally the least efficient high volume score among all high major players. That's that's a real concern. And the fact that he has all the tools is one thing, but it doesn't matter how many tools you have if you don't use them well. And, you know, there are a lot of ways in which he is not taking full advantage of his skills. And it's clear to see in how many shots he puts up that, as you said, just make you go, what are you doing? Why is this what you have chosen to do on this particular possession? Just why? Yeah, and, and that that's kind of the question I find myself asking a lot when I watch him. It's just, why? Like, why was that the decision? And there, there's so many things that can go into that, obviously, because we, we don't know what he's being directed to do as a player from the coaching staff. And maybe they're telling him to go out there and do this. But then that's also prolonging a lot of these bad habits because it's not teaching him to play within himself or really move the ball and create for others. It's just, you know, constantly having him go out there and do the same thing and hoping that you get a hot night from him, um, you know, once in a blue moon or not once in a blue moon. Cause he, he puts up 20 ra- rather frequently. Um, but it, it's just, it's taking these bad habits and kind of just pushing them down the road for eh, that, that that's someone else's problem to fix later. And instead of trying to rein him in and correct some of these bad habits, they're just being expounded upon. And I, I think being kind of made worse because he, he's just, he just keeps getting the green light over and over and over again. And the, like I've said, the nights that it's clicking, you can easily understand why, but more often than not, it's really inefficient shooting. It's really inefficient scoring. And it, he just doesn't have that, kind of that basketball maturity level yet to pick his spots like we've seen from Johnny Davis this year. So I'm curious, what do you think would be the best fit for him at the NBA level in terms of either role or team or playing style? Because his ability to create offense in the way that he does is something that I think could be hugely valuable in a six-man type role off the bench. And if you're a gunner off the bench, then it's a little bit more understand. Understandable is not the right word, but it's a little easier to get away with being that kind of player if you're just coming off the bench and the entirety of your role is, look, just try and put the ball in the basket. But I mean, his inefficiency at the college level is something that will be even more exploited at the NBA level. And if he isn't in a role where basically it's like, okay, you have the ball in your hands and we're just going to ask you to score similarly, you know, that brings up more questions about his developmental path going forward. So, you know, maybe he finds the right sort of six man type situation in the NBA and this all becomes moot, but 
I don't know. I mean, I feel like he, more than a lot of players in this draft, really needs to go to the right situation because otherwise the holes in his game and the negatives in his game are just going to be hammered home and exploited by everyone he plays against. Yeah, so I I think that's the toughest thing when I think about what is Blake Wesley going to do when it comes draft time. Because I, there there are so many developmental things that he really needs to fix. But I don't know if, A, an NBA team is going to be willing to invest the time and resources to do that. Or, B, if Notre Dame is the best spot for him to figure that stuff out. Because, like I said earlier, they they keep just letting him go out there and play the same way pretty much night after night. So if he comes back for another year... Are any of those shooting issues going to be corrected? Is the strength going to be corrected? Is the shot selection going to be improved? And, you know, based on this year, I'm I'm hesitant to really believe that. In the NBA, though, I, I think his best situation would be landing in a situation like Jordan Poole did, where he gets dra- he gets a first-round promise and a team just puts a ton of time and resources into developing him and the player Jordan Poole is now is so significantly different than the one that came out of Michigan um but that's the outlier we don't see NBA teams yes do that on a regular basis like that that that's a special case more often than not it's okay well we've had two training camps with you you really haven't taken a jump that we wanted we're going to kind of waive you or not pick up your option. And then you're going to bounce around as a two way guy for a couple of years or whatever. Like it, that, that one's way more common. And if I'm an NBA team, I, I think I may try to preach and use him as a defensive guy first, because I, I generally like a lot of the stuff he does defensively. And I think if maybe you push that role on him and then use the scoring as just a plus, um, and kind of take the ball out of his hands a little bit and just have him focus on being a really good defender off the bench. And then not, you know, on off days and in practice and behind the scenes and everything that that's where you're working on developing the shooting uh, mechanics and decision-making and all that kind of stuff. And then a couple of years later, then that really takes a leap. Now you have a t- decent two-way guy who's kind of bought in on both ends of the floor. You mentioned the strength and that I think is going to be, really the biggest thing for him because quite frankly a lot of his problems on both ends of the floor are not solved but at least mitigated if he gets stronger and so that I think whether he does go to the NBA or returns to Notre Dame for his sophomore season I think the really key thing for him is going to be okay so how much time did you spend in the weight room and are you better now at finishing around the basket and if not are you at least better able to keep up with bigger wings defensively but I don't know I mean my thought on it is if you're gonna draft him and say okay we want you to focus on the defensive end we want you to be a great defender before we give you the ball in your hands a lot I mean I'm not saying that I dislike his defense but like if you're drafting him for that there are so many other players that I would rather have who have proven more on the defensive end and you're not just like okay we're gonna take a flyer on you turning from the least efficient high usage player in high major basketball to a defensive specialist like if you're gonna do that why not just take a defensive specialist yeah no i so like when when i say that yeah i wouldn't be drafting him to be a defender um i that's just what i would preach to him 
to get him and like to try and change his mindset and buy into that role. But I not you, you draft him for the offensive upside because if you can figure out that shot, get it more consistent, then you have a legitimate, like high volume efficient score on your hands. Um and then especially once you once he adds strength and weight and all that kind of stuff, that's when the, the scoring and the defense I t- I think take a real significant step up. I and mean, he's currently in the fourteenth percentile. Um, finishing around the basket in non-post-up situations, and he only takes a runner two and a half percent of his shots, so he doesn't really have a, any touch in that intermediate area, and then he doesn't have the strength or craft to finish through contact at the rim. So that's really concerning to me. Um, but defensively, I think he moves his feet well. Um, off ball, I think his instincts are generally pretty good. He gets caught ball watching and stuff, but a lot of his off ball issues, I think, are more just a symptom of youth. But I, I think there's just a lot to like and to kind of build around defensively while really working on fixing a lot of the offensive issues. So not to go back to the well with free throws again, as I frequently do, but <laughs> he's also shooting 65% from the free throw line. And you know, we talked about with Kennedy Chandler, the concept that if you're not going to have a viable mid-range game, you need to at least be able to live at the free throw line. And Wesley's certainly better at drawing fouls than Kennedy Chandler is, but that 65% from the line does not bode well for his touch in general and his issues with, you know, scoring in the mid-range outside of self-created, you know, step-back jumpers is, uh, you know, a bit of a bit of a concern given that he also is not a particularly efficient free throw shooter. Yeah. And I, I think the free throw thing is a, a good thing to point out because when we see guys who have really quality shooting mechanics and that high free throw percentage, but the, you know, the, the field goal percentage or the three point percentage just isn't where we want it to be. It's like, okay, well the mechanics are sound. They're consistent. We can see it over and over and they're, you know, it's producing here in this isolated you know, situation. So eventually there's something to build on once that kind of gets implemented into gameplay and it just really doesn't show up for Wesley. Um, and that's where the, the shooting mechanic issues really, you know, are pronounced because that's where you should be. If, if he's shooting 75 to 80% from the line, that's when I get a lot more encouraged about, okay, there is something consistent with his mechanics here how do we implement that into live game or, okay, his touch is solid from the line. So that means there's stuff to kind of build on and work with. And he's just not showing that, unfortunately. So I've been pretty down on Wesley. So I do want to turn it around and close out with something positive, which is not going to sound like it's something positive when I start out, but I'll get there. I have had issues in the past with evaluating these kinds of players who are incredibly good at creating space for themselves and shots for themselves, but not necessarily being all that efficient with them. And someone who we talked about quite a bit on this podcast last year in regards to that was Cam Thomas. And I've already done my mea culpa about having Cam Thomas at 30th on my board. But the reason that I had him there and not lower than that is because The most difficult skill in the NBA, in my opinion, is the ability to create shots for yourself. And Wesley has the ability to do that. And they aren't the most efficient shots. And there are certainly reasons to be concerned about his consistency overall and his consistency on his jump shot form in particular. But 
ultimately he has an ability that very few players, even at the NBA level have to create space for his own shot. And ultimately there are a lot of things that he has to figure out, but he does have that skill that very few people have. That means that ultimately there's still a lot of reason to hope for him, even if there are plenty of concerns sort of littering the path ahead of him. Yeah. And you and I were right. You know, we, we saw eye to eye pretty much with Cam Thomas last year. And I, I think we really underrated the the difficulty of his kind of shot creation and the, the, the physical bully ball kind of mature nature of it that has really translated pr- pretty seamlessly. Um, I, I think another guy to kind of point out in that who I was much, much higher on, obviously, was Trey Mann. Um, and we're starting mm-hmm. to see that develop, too. But I mean, Trey Mann's shooting was in a completely different world than where Wesley's at right now. So so is Cam's. The the herky jerkiness of Wesley's movements, that quick twitch stuff, it, it's so hard to defend because he goes from zero to eighty in a split second and it's he's kind of gangly in his limbs. I, I know that doesn't sound like a compliment, but it, it is he's just kind of long and lanky and just moves so quickly and has such good footwork and balance that, that there's so much to get excited about when you watch him create his own shot um, because he, he can get to the rim pretty consistently. He just can't finish there. He can't create space on the perimeter and in the mid range, he just struggles to consistently finish it. So it's like, if you just cut the video after the shot left his hands, you'd be like, Oh my God, this guy rocks. It's just, it's those shooting mechanics that, they just need so much work because I, when he shoots off the catch, he's dipping the ball down towards his knees and bringing it to his like left hip and then up across and shooting on the other side of his face. It, it's just an absolute mess um, that and every time it's something different. So it, it's it's so frustrating because the process on the majority of his shots and how he gets into them is really encouraging and there's a lot to like. So let's talk now before we wrap up about a prospect who is almost as different as it is possible to be, despite being the same (laughs) height at 6'5". So my most recent Sleeper Deep Dives article over on No Ceilings NBA was about Alondis Williams, who is not a highly touted freshman, but rather was a player who spent a couple years in junior college before even going to Oklahoma, where he was mostly a bit player off the bench. And then this year he has absolutely exploded for Wake Forest. And it's mainly due to him doing what he'd been doing in a smaller sample size at Oklahoma in just a much larger sample size with the ball in his hands a lot more at Wake Forest. Namely, he is arguably the best guard in the country at scoring from two-point range. And he was at 60.7% on two-point baskets when I wrote that article last week, which is the kind of number you expect to see from basically a lob-catching center, not a primary point guard who's averaging 20 points a game. Williams may be 23 years old by the time he starts his first NBA season, but there is really a ton to love about him as a prospect. But I want to hear your thoughts on Alondis Williams because I'm more than a little bit biased after having gone through the film to write that article. What are your thoughts on what he's done this season for Wake Forest? He's, he's a lot of fun. I have him as like an early kind of second round guy, uh, like right, right around 40. 
Um, but I, I think his playmaking is really special. Just his passing vision and creativity is a lot of fun. Um, I really like his rebounding, especially for his position. And then his at rim finishing is pretty absurd. Um, and that's where his size and strength really come into play. And he's in the 91st percentile finishing around the basket in non post-up situations, which he does 42% of the time. So it, it's just a really reliable tool that he can go to over and over and over again. Something I was curious about where you're at. Do you trust the outside shot? Because I feel like it looks okay, but then you go and look at the percentages and it's, you know, 31% this year, but it's never been over 30% his previous two years. It's an interesting question. I think the shot looks a lot better than the numbers would say, but Mm -hmm. I don't really trust it. I'm not, you know, especially since, again, as you mentioned, this is his first season above 30%. His second season at Oklahoma, he shot exactly one three-pointer a game, and he's more than quadrupled that this year, and yet he's somehow increased his percentage. So, you know, part of me thinks that that's something that he's really worked on this past year and is starting to try to incorporate into his game, which you know, given how he's developed as a prospect since his first year at college, not even at the Division One level to where he's at now, I certainly have a lot of faith in his work ethic, but I think that's really the basis for hope in his shot because that has not been something that's been a part of his game up until really this year. And even this year, it's been kind of touch and go on that front. Yeah, and then to kind of add to that, and he's also in the 82nd percentile in mid-range pull-ups. Um, which, you know, I think is really encouraging, um, especially considering where his shot came from and how it's, like you said, developed not to, you know, great efficiency, but much better than in previous years on much higher volume. So, you know, if if he can kind of continue to pull that back and draw it out, I, I think there's something there to work with, because like you said, too, there's nothing as obviously visually wrong with it, like, or inconsistently wrong with it, like, we talked about with Wesley. And the other thing with Alondis is he really just needs to get his shot to the point where teams pay attention to it, you know, where he's mm-hmm. not at like Rajanando, Russell Westbrook levels of defenses just say, yeah, or Ben Simmons for the ultimate example, but, you know, defense is just saying, yeah, okay, we'll give you 10 feet of space, sure, because again, you're an absolute monster as soon as you get anywhere near the basket. So, Really with him, I think it's more just I'm putting up four threes a game so that defenses know that they can't leave me completely alone. But really, if he puts up four three-pointers a game or four or five three-pointers per 36 minutes and really just says, okay, you need to at least pay attention to me out here because I'm going to hit 30-ish percent of them. You know, him hitting 30-ish percent on his triples is less efficient than him getting inside the arc. And that says a lot more about just how incredible he is at scoring two-point baskets, says a lot more about that than it does about his three-point shooting. So I think the fact that he's upped his volume from three is almost more important than the fact that it's in the 30s because he really just needs teams to at least give him a second look when he might be pulling up from three-point range because if they just sort of pack the paint against him, 
you know, he's enough of an athlete and finisher around the rim that I don't think that neutralizes him entirely, but his game does a lot better if teams at least have to pay attention to him when he's beyond the line, because if he gets a step on a defender because they think he might pull up for that three pointer, then it's kind of all over for the other team. Yeah. And just from like an efficiency standpoint, even if he can get to like late career Rondo, like shooting numbers, I think that would be a huge win. Um, mainly off of like the catch and shoot where defenders over help off of him and then a kick out to him and he's able to knock down a wide open three that you know and that that does something to defenders in the back of their mind where it's oh shoot now I can't go over the screen because this guy just buried a three on me and now now he has a little more of a window to attack the rim so I think just the occasional pull up but then just being not deadly off the catch but just a reliable kick out option i i I think will do wonders for him because the the at room finishing is really good the playmaking is really good the strength is there it's just what level of consistency are we going to get out get from his shot i'm really glad that you brought up the playmaking because that's the other thing that i think has been really huge for him this year in terms of sort of boosting his draft stock you know the thing with him at oklahoma is he was playing a bit part mostly, didn't have the ball in his hands that much. And this year, he's not just leading the scoring charge for Wake Forest, which he definitely is, but he's also done a great job of creating for his teammates. He had 50 assists combined in his two seasons at Oklahoma, and he has 152 so far this season. He's leading the ACC in assists per game as someone who, you know, is proving himself to be someone who can be a primary point guard. Whereas, yeah, I don't want to say there wasn't much evidence for that before. I think really the truth of it is that he exploded onto the seat as a draft prospect this year, precisely because of what he's done in a much larger role at Wake Forest. But the fact that he's been so good as a playmaker is really, I think the most encouraging thing for him because, you know, at six, five, as someone who you can trust with the ball in his hands, not just as a scorer, but also as a playmaker, You know, I talk again and again about how many different avenues a player can have to work their way into an NBA rotation. And Alondis Williams becoming the ACC's leading assist man this season is really encouraging for him to be able to sort of carve out an NBA role, not just because he's ridiculously efficient at scoring around the basket, but that he can do other things with the ball in his hands if teams do sort of collapse the paint on him. So his three point shooting is certainly a positive on that front in terms of if he at least puts up for them a game and makes a decent ish percentage, then teams have to pay attention to him out there. But I think really the big thing for him is just what he's shown as a playmaker this season to the point where, you know, when defenses collapse the paint on him, he's someone who you can trust to kick out to the open guy when he has the opportunity. It's not just, I'm going to barrel towards the rim and, whatever happens, I'm just going to keep on going and see what happens. Just looking at his like career assist averages. It's, it's just a really funny kind of growth from 0.6 his first year to 1.3 to 5.1 now. Um, but you know, the, the argument against that, just to play devil's advocate here a little bit, his turnovers per game have jumped to 3.6. Do you have any concerns over that? Or is that just a, a symptom of, the the types of passes he makes and Wake Forest just really heavy ball movement system. I have some concerns, but I'm not overly worried about it because 
I think that there's an element to which the fact that he's been empowered as the lead guy at Wake Forest has led to him making some questionable choices sometimes with his passes, which occasionally lead to turnovers. But I think it's really more that he's attempting a lot of things and sometimes those attempts go wrong, but other times you can see, wow, he's really just someone who has a ton of potential as a playmaker. And, you know, every once in a while, those wild passes, you know, you look at the replay from those wild passes and it's like, wow, he was so close to making a ridiculous play that would have ended up on a bunch of highlight reels. And instead he misses by a couple inches and, you know, it bounces off the guy's leg and sails into the crowd or whatever. But I think, I'm concerned, certainly, but I'm almost more pleased by the audacity of some of the attempts and what that sort of portends for his future development than I am concerned about the turnovers. I'm not going to say it's something that I'm not worried about at all because, you know, going to three and a half turnovers a game is not great, but I think that there's also reason to be encouraged by some of those near misses even though there is reason to be concerned by the turnover number overall. Yeah, I, I, I'm generally kind of right there with you because you, you want your league guard to take some take some risks every now and then, especially if they have that level of passing ability, which Alondis clearly does. And I, I, I do think just his role has changed so much just from last season to this season on a new team that I, I, I do think that that and Wake Forest tendency to really move the ball. Almost everyone on that team is a really good passer. Um, so just kind of across the board, they they take some risks. So I, I, I think it's, you know, you're not going to be super excited about three and a half turnovers a game. But I also think there's enough signs that it's not a detrimental flaw to his game. And it's something that could be reined back and really kind of minimized, uh, get if he's put in like a lesser role and like more of a, a a backup point guard off the bench or something. And the other thing too is yes, his turnovers have jumped massively, but he's actually improved his assist to turnover ratio compared to last season, which, you know, also indicates that a lot of this is just because he's got a heck of a lot more chances at Wake Forest Mm -hmm. than he ever had at Oklahoma. And some of those turn out poorly, but he's also leading the ACC at assists, right? It's not just that, oh, he's throwing a bunch of terrible passes and this is really concerning. It's like, well, you know, he's also creating a ton of opportunities for his teammates and is doing so in a much larger role than we've ever seen him have at the Division One level. Yeah, no, I, I think whenever you look at guys' numbers and it's just so important to put in context, what is their role? What are they being asked to do? And how does it differ from last year? And Obviously, with how much more Alondis is on the ball this year compared to last year, yeah, the turnovers are going to jump a little bit. But then the the absurd spike in assist numbers is really encouraging, and I think that gives a better kind of depiction of who he is as a passer and kind of primary initiator than the the significant jump in turnovers. So where do you see his NBA role sort of ending up? Because my thoughts on this are similar to thoughts I've had about a lot of similar players, namely that if you're taking a guy, I think he's probably more early second round than say Iverson Molinar, who we talked about a few weeks ago as someone who I had a first round grade on. But I think with Williams, he is already at 23 
pretty much equipped to be a backup point guard by like year two in the NBA. And the question is just what else can he grow into beyond that? And I think that really backup point guard is kind of where he sits at the NBA level. But the flip side of that is he's grown so much since being a non-recruit out of high school who went to a junior college to where he's at this season at Wake Forest. And I think that I don't want to rule out the chance of him maybe being like a starter caretaker point guard type just because he's so ridiculously good around the rim and just a little bit of growth from him as a shooter would make him a lot more dangerous. So I don't want to sort of limit his ceiling in a sense, but I think that he has a pretty clear floor as like a fourth guard type, because even though he's going to be 23 years old by the start of his first NBA season, you just don't find guys who are as good around the rim as a guard as he is. And that's immensely valuable, especially for teams that really struggle to create pressure on the rim when the starters leave the game and it's turned over to the second unit. So maybe he could be a starter in the right situation, year or two from now. I mean, I thought that Ayodesunmu was going to be, and he was someone I did have a first round grade on too, but I thought he was going to be someone who was a valuable bench player and already in year one in Chicago, he started games for them. So again, I don't want to put a cap on Williams' ceiling, but I think that he has a very clear place in the NBA for the next decade as at a minimum, like a third or fourth guard. It's tough with guys his or guys like him because you know his historically um he's closer to a finished product than not so you know he's an older prospect there probably isn't a ton more to his game that we're gonna see from him but then at the same time like you said the leaps he's taken over the last couple of years have been pretty extraordinary to the point where he went from a name no one even knew to you know, now now we're talking about him as a top 40 pick, which is pretty absurd and leading the ACC in assists. Um, so his in historical context, you know, it's probably like, OK, this is the player we're going to get. But, hey, maybe he's one of these outliers who really develops that outside shot. And then that really expands his game as a whole. Um, if I were a betting man, I would be surprised if if he did get become a starter, if it was on anything more than like a bad team. Um, but I think he could be a really, really good second or third guard off the bench um, for like a solid playoff team. And I, I think he would add um, a sense of playmaking and creativity and physicality and rebounding to a bench unit that a lot of teams would really welcome. Yeah, you mentioned the rebounding too, which I'm glad you've brought that up multiple times because I haven't and I should have. He's an exceptional rebounder for a guard. And that combined with the amount of pressure that he puts on the rim, I think there are a lot of NBA teams that could really use his ability to attack the basket and be an energy player off the bench. So to be clear, I think that the odds of him being a starter on more than a terrible team are very, very slim. But it's more just that I don't want to rule out the possibility given just how much he's grown year over year since he entered the college basketball sphere. Yeah. And I, I think the place where we're both really landing on him is that he, he, he has a really good shot to have 
a, a legitimate NBA career, which is a lot more than a lot of guys can say. Um, I, I think the tools, the maturity, the physicality are all stuff that can really be molded and really utilized in an NBA rotation in a multitude of ways. All right. Anything else you want to cover here before we wrap things up? Um, I don't think so. Just excited for the tournaments to start beginning and our lives should get a whole lot crazier. Fun times. <laughs> All right. He is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And you can find his work on No Ceilings NBA as well as hashtag basketball and Canisupis. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can also find my written work at No Ceilings and hashtag basketball as well as Nets Republic. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.